Good morning. Okay, so am I on? Okay, you can hear me. That's great. Otherwise, it's a long morning. Uh, so uh, last night, got here, was in the hotel, and uh, Tim Cooper that works with me sent me um, the link for the video of Charlie kicking off this series. And so I watched it. He sang four verses of that song. Were you here? Yeah. Harry Chafin's family is suing. Uh, <laughs> I am so proud of Charlie. That is, first of all, when he first started, I thought, that is so cool. By the third verse, I'm like, come on. No, that was, that was hilarious. That was hilarious. Um, Acts chapter 2, starting verse 42. Acts chapter 2, starting verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you for the opportunity to gather together with other believers and other seekers and to explore your word, to worship together. Thank you for everybody using their talents that helps us as a body. I pray that you guide us now for the next few minutes to just kind of block out everything else that's going on outside the walls and that we left when we came into this space and guide us by your spirit through your word that we might grow and grow closer to you, both individually and as a body. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I started off uh, in my professional world as a church planter. I planted a church in Seattle, Washington. It's been a long time out there. And then changed gears. And so for the last 20 years, I've been traveling. The last 20 years, I've been working with churches like Southbrook. been blessed to work with about 1,000 churches in 47 states. There are three states God does not love. I, <laughs> I don't know if you live in North Dakota, Vermont, or uh, Rhode Island. You got it tough. Um, I've even worked in Hawaii because somebody has to, you know? So because I travel, so last Sunday I was in uh, upper uh, Minnesota, and before that I was in upper Michigan, and so always somewhere, drive a lot, fly a lot, spend a lot of time in, in uh, airports, and as a result, I do two things. I people watch and I read. People watch because I think somebody should and I think there should be some kind of a, a citation we can hand out as fashion police because it's sad. <laughs> I, I'm just, I sit and I watch, I'm like, really? You decided when you looked in the mirror, that's what I'm wearing today. <laughs> Has nothing to do with my message, it's just a burden that I'm sharing. Um, <laughs> but I also read. So on my iPad, got hundreds of books and, you know, flip and flop, nonfiction, fiction, and like to read a lot of biographies, just made it through about 1,500 pages of a biography of Ulysses S. Grant, president of the United States, uh, Civil War general. Very interesting book, tough book. I'm one of those stubborn people, though. If I start, I'm going to finish it no matter how bad it is. So, you know, I, I read it. 
but also recently read one that was fascinating, and it is the biography of Steve Jobs and Apple. Just thought I knew the story, didn't know the story. Just amazing stuff. So in 1976, Steve Jobs and another guy, Wozniak, in a little garage in Palo Alto, California, started this fledgling little company called Apple. And from 1976 to 1985, they just kind of carved out their little niche in the Apple I and the Apple II and had some success. They weren't doing the, the full frontal attack success like just up in Seattle, uh, Bill Gates was doing with Microsoft where he worked the deal with IBM and everybody's PC got you know, Windows installed. And it wasn't that kind of a deal. It was kind of a little niche, but it was successful to the point that by the time he was 23 years old, he was worth $250 million dollars. Isn't that amazing? So 76, 85, but he's difficult. He's eccentric, tough to deal with, toughest on the people closest to him, had little weird quirks. Like he went for a period of years where he refused to wear shoes and he refused to wear deodorant, which closed door meetings were a problem for some people. Uh, would not put tags on his car. Thought that was not right. You shouldn't have to have license tags. So he just drove without the tags. So by the time 1985 rolls around, they're having some friction, and there's a board coup, and they kick him out of his own company. And so he's gone. And stubborn to the end, he sells, the day that he leaves, he sells every bit of stock that he has, except for one share, so that he could show up at a stockholders meeting if he wanted to. Started another computer company at the same time called Next. Next, concentrated on colleges and university. Once again, niche, some success. While that's going on, Scully comes over, CEO of Pepsi, takes CEO of Apple, and so they're enjoying some success as soon as Jobs leaves for a while, too, on different paths. Jobs, because he's really more of an artist. He wasn't a coder. He wasn't a, an engineer by training. And so he works a deal with this guy named George Lucas, and he buys this little fledgling company called Pixar for $10 million dollars. Later, he sold it after things like Toy Story came out for $7 billion to Disney, and he becomes the largest single shareholder of Disney. Very interesting stuff. But all that progresses for a period of time until 1996, so a good period of time. In 96, Apple's going through tough times. They've lost their way. They're not insolvent, but they've got some tough row. And so they do the unthinkable, and they make a deal and ask Steve if he'll come back and take the job back. Wouldn't you love to have been in that meeting? <laughs> so he comes back. They know he's difficult, so they don't give him CEO title right away. He's going to be interim CEO. But it wasn't like he comes back with this box of new products to release. Remember, he's not an engineer. He's not a coder. He's an artist. He thought things like... Technology should be pretty. The inside of the computer should be just as nice and orderly as the outside, that you ought to sign your name on the inside. Uh, he thought that it shouldn't be frightening to people like me that are not real technical and don't know our way around the keyboard. And so these products then come out of that vision. But why did they bring him back? They brought him back because they had lost their vision for what they started to be. 1976, he starts in the garage. In 96, 20 years later is when they bring him back. Some, some peaks and some valleys, but they realized they had lost the connection to their original vision. That's the key. Now, in 2011, he passes away from cancer. 
they go on to produce all those products that have I before them, iPads and iPods and iPhones and everything else you can imagine. And that's the end of our computer lesson. It has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about. <laughs> but I found it fascinating and I wanted to share. Uh, no, it does. So if you open up the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you look at the, uh, the beginning of Christianity, and it's the life and ministry of Jesus. And in those first four books, you really are getting the same story over and over again from four different directions. It's like you're filming a movie, and these are the camera angles. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's the ministry of Jesus all the way to his, his life, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. That's all there. And then you go into number, the fifth book is Acts. Acts is the history of the church. You and I sitting together, we're continuing to write that. Acts, as you begin chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, it's that, that beginning, that infant stage of the church, and you start to see that it blooms and blossoms exponentially. And I think that the river is always purest at its source, and that we as a church in 2021, especially coming out of all the stuff that we've been dealing with for the last 18 months or so, it's time to make sure we're connected to the original vision. So Acts chapter 2 is where I want to camp out just for a few minutes. Remember that in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 that Peter's going to share this message and on all these folks are going to, that are there in Jerusalem for the Pentecost feast, so many of them are going to respond and it's that, that church. Well, in verse 42... It says, first, they were devoted to prayer. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, said, church that advances on her knees never has to retreat. At this, begin at this point of the, of the church, before Pentecost, we're down to 120 believers or so. And so they're gathered together for prayer. Prayer is the source. Prayer is where the strength comes from. And they understand that. There's no protection for them. This is not a, a period of time where they have tax exemption as a church. Nobody cares whether they're essential or not. As we've been told for the last couple of years, really church is not that essential. Nobody's protecting them that they have the right to worship. And so they gather together, hunker down, if you will, and they pray. Billy Graham said, a prayerless Christian is a contradiction. Every man or woman whose life has ever counted for God has been a person for, of prayer. All right, so I want to go quickly. Stay with me. Look at these scriptures. Remember Acts, starting with chapter 2, we're progressing through the life of the church. Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost was preceded by 10 days of prayer. Acts chapter 4, when the church was attacked by its enemies, the believers prayed to God for help. Acts chapter 7, while being stoned, Stephen prayed his final words. Acts chapter 13, through prayer, God called Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel message to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 6, the leaders were devoted to prayer and prayed for the believers. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, whose prayers and gifts to the poor came up as a remembrance before God. Through Cornelius and his revelation to Peter, God showed his, he played no favoritism and offered salvation to the Gentiles. Then we go into Romans chapter 8. The Holy Spirit guided their prayers. Then Acts chapter 16. Women gathered to pray at a place of prayer where Lydia and her household were baptized and became Paul's first convert in Europe and hosted the church at Philippi in her home. 
Acts chapter 21, in Ephesus, all the disciples and their wives and children bid Paul a final farewell on the beach and knelt to pray as he departed for Jerusalem. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul encouraged believers to devote themselves to prayer. Ephesus was tireless in his prayers for his fellow laborers. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 6, the church at Ephesus was instructed to pray that the gospel would be declared fearlessly. Here's my point. James says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I think if you've been hanging out in church for a while, you know that instinctively. You've heard about prayer. You know that we're supposed to be praying people. The Bible says we're supposed to be in in, in ceaseless prayer, so it's not that we walk around with our eyes shut, but that we're in a constant communication with God. I think that's the part that's kind of the disconnect. I think that as churches continued on and become more and more organized and we get caught up more and more in the stuff of religion, we try to put it into a box and forget it is the source of everything that we have individually. It is where our strength or the weaknesses are revealed for lack thereof if we're not plugged into the prayer. And I said I, I travel. So when I travel, sometimes I fly, sometimes I drive. Last week I flew to Minneapolis and then drove two hours. So a lot of time in, in vehicles. And I have passed, I was thinking this great day in the morning. I live in Kentucky, you can say that. Great day in the morning. I bet I've gone by thousands of churches. You know, I've literally, we've worked with a thousand churches, but I've driven by thousands. And you know when you go by those small, modest churches that are kind of off by themselves and they look a little tired and they look like they're in need of a little love and attention and maybe some repair and there's a sign that has their name and it maybe has service times and often it'll say prayer meeting Wednesday night 6 o'clock now that's okay that's good but I'm afraid that we have somehow taken prayer and said you know we're supposed to pray and it's supposed to be important to the church so let's have some kind of program with it and let's stick it over at a certain time and make sure people know that they need to come do that put in their time in praying that's not the idea prayer is the foundation of our being prayer is where we gather our strength the early church it says was devoted to prayer so my first challenge to you as the church as the called out assembly church just means called out assembly it means when you and i are are together in this room we're the church the church is to be devoted to prayer two early church going back to that original vision verse 43 it was an exciting church everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles when is the last time you have been filled with awe for anything think about it being awe inspired that's where you you lose like i i I can't i can't even really respond i mean we have abused the word awesome you know everything's awesome from your new car to a hamburger you know it's everything's awesome Oh, that's awesome. But awe, that's where that comes from, awe. So I told you I'm in airports a lot, and so I people watch. And I've seen a lot of famous people. I ate a donut with Joe Montana, NFL Hall of Fame quarterback. Ate a donut. He ate a donut. I ate a donut. Now, he was at a different table, but I felt like we were together. (laughs) I mean, I have seen a lot of famous people. I I literally, I I should make a list of of the... Muhammad Ali, I mean, just some, some, some crazy famous people that I've bumped into, literally. So one day, not too long ago, I was in LAX, Los Angeles Airport. A friend of mine was traveling with me, and we're in the crowded entrance to the airport, and I did an unthinkable. I kind of turned and started walking backwards and talking to my friend for just a, a few seconds, which you don't do in a crowded airport. 
And so as soon as I turned around, I kind of lost where I was. And I'm at the foot of an escalator that's coming down, you know, with all these people. So this guy and I bump. And as soon as he bumps, you know, like we do that dance trying to get out to each other's way. And, he, and he's very polite. And I'm sorry. And I'm very polite. And I'm sorry. And then I, I recognized him. Now, you would recognize him probably, too, because he has a tiger tattooed on his face. And there's not a lot of people have that. It's Mike Tyson, the boxer. First thing I did is cover my ears. No, that's, that's not true. That is not true. Uh, he was very nice. Very, very nice. But for a second, I just like, I don't want to say. I, and the only thing I could say was, you're Mike Tyson. I think he knew that, you know. Ah, oh, when is the last time your church, your experience in worship, your time together with other believers was awe-inspiring? What are we supposed to do? When I show up at church, I'm in all these different churches, and they're all different in how they do stuff. So what's right? What's wrong? How are we supposed to behave when we're together? Habakkuk, I know that's a book you read a lot. Habakkuk chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Is that it? Are we supposed to be silent? Are we supposed to be just quiet and reverent? The last psalm, the book of Psalms, 150, the last one, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and the lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Praise him with electric guitar and smoke machines and keep... Wait a minute, that's a, that's a different translation. Uh, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. So here's my point. What's the scripture say if you and I refuse to praise what will happen? The rocks will cry out. The rocks will cry out. So the church, the early church, was, a, was not just devoted and bathed in prayer, but it was founded on this, this supernatural power. Now, I, I think, and this is, to quote scripture, this is the rock from which we're hewn. This is who we come from. This is our heritage. The older I get, the more care I care about where I came from, you know? It, it, it really is. I flew in a plane one time with a guy that's an anthropologist. And he had that phrase, which you probably heard of it before, but if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. If you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. So part of this is we need to know where we've been. We need to know who we are and where we came from. Look, three supernatural pieces to the early church when they started. Number one, supernatural communication. Acts chapter 2, verse 6. Everyone heard the speaking in their own language. This We gloss over this. This is hilarious. Amazing. So... Just days before, this various group of Jews that had gathered together, many from all over the place because they pilgrimed for this feast. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you live in Israel, so they could be anywhere. But they, they're there. And so just days before, many of them were the ones that cried out for Jesus to be crucified, remember? Then there, the, the disciples are together in the upper room bathing this in prayer, which gives the power to Peter. And he gets up, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and he preaches what we know to be the first gospel message. And so it was so compelling that 3,000, they only counted guys, so we don't really know how many people, but 3,000 interrupted him and said, what can we do to be saved? They wanted to respond. That's the setting that you have. Here's what I'd want you to see, and you'd gloss over. These Jews had pilgrimed there from all over the world. They did not all speak the same language. So Peter 
gets up to speak, he's empowered by God. And as he does, they hear it in their language. Think about that. Think about how different the exponential spread of Christianity and the change of history for the next hundred years would be if that didn't take place. Because what would happen up until that point is everybody would be listening. And if, and if you read the scripture, they even said, hey, in this guy from Galilee, I don't speak that. How, how, how am I understanding this? So if it wasn't for that miracle, they get together. They try to find somebody in their little group. Say, hey, do you understand what he's saying? What's he saying? Translate it to me. And then they would try to understand that. And then when the feast is over, they go back to wherever it is that they came. And the gospel message, well-intentioned, would be perverted because everybody's trying to remember exactly what they were told through the translation. A few years ago, I was invited to preach in uh, Italy and started in Rome and went eight or nine large churches all the way down to Palermo, Sicily, and it culminated with this big march that they were having. And it was an honor. Gaetano Satilli has a ministry there called Italy for Christ. He's a great guy. Invited me to come over and speak. Honored to go. Had a lot of fun. Met a lot of people. Worst experience of my life to communicate. I'm a communicator, but my gig's pretty much North America. <laughs> and when I go to Italy, it's like you talk, say, four or five words, and then your interpreter says four or five words. Luigi Incarnato was my interpreter, great guy. I actually brought him back and put him on my staff uh, in Seattle. Um, he and his wife, Michaela, wonderful people. But after the first three or four times doing this, I'm like, Luigi, why don't you just preach it? I mean, you've heard me do it so many times, and you speak the language. It's just such a, a, a tough barrier Another thing is, after the service, they all line up to kiss you. And I've not been kissed by that many men by, at one time. Uh, it was, it was very, very un, a little bit unsettling. Um, so this exponential growth out of that one simple miracle of them being able to hear in their own language causes the church to explode internationally. Second, remember we're going through Acts. It's a history book. Acts chapter 3, we're just a little bit later is supernatural healing. Acts chapter 3, verse 6 and 7, is where Peter and John are going to the temple. Why are they going to the temple? Well, if you're looking for people that might be receptive to spiritual thoughts, not a bad place to go hang out. So they go to the temple. Well, there's this guy that's been crippled from birth. And so his family, his loving family, every day, every morning, picks him up, carries him to the entrance to the temple, and sits him down so that somebody going by might take pity upon him. It's kind of their equivalent of the guy with the cardboard sign at the interstate turn on. And so he's got his little hand out, alms, alms for the poor. So Peter and John walk by, and this guy's been sitting there, does this every day. He sticks his hand up like he always does, alms, alms for the poor. Here's a verse that you probably don't remember from this story. Peter looks at him. And the first thing he said, he goes, look at me. I just love that. See, I think everything in Scripture we're promised is God-breathed. It's that every word that's recorded is there for a purpose. Why did he say that? Why did he look at the guy and say, look at me? I think this guy has done this so long, it's just out of muscle memory. It's just out of rope. He's got his hand out. He's probably already on to the next person. And remember, if you've ever been to vacation Bible school as a little kid or Sunday school or anything like that, it's got a little song that comes with it. Remember what Peter does. It says, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I freely give to you. And then he reached down and picks him up, and the man is healed. And what's he go? 
He goes walking and leaping and praising God. Remember the song? Walking and leaping and praising God. Here's the deal. And this is what I want you to see. If it's a God miracle, four things happen. If it's a God miracle, four things happen. One, no one could deny it. It's not, everybody knew this guy. He's there every day. It's not like they bust him in from somewhere so they can pretend that he was healed. Can't deny it. Number two, it's instant healing. Peter reached down and the scripture said as soon as he stood up, his ankles were solid. That's how he was able to go walking and leaping and praising God. It's instantaneous. It's not time consuming. And three, it's complete. It wasn't, hey, Peter, you know, or Peter looks down, hey, dude, we're going to work on your left leg and then later we'll come back and do that right leg. That's not it. It's instantaneous and, and complete. And in four, it's unconditional. Hear me. It's unconditional. Peter didn't look at him and say, you know, really like to heal you, but I'm afraid that you just don't have the faith. That's not Bible. Third, supernatural circumstance. Ah, now we're gone longer in Acts chapter. We're Acts chapter 12. Now King Herod, is, he's, he's feeling the pressure. This church thing, they call it the way. That's the, what we are. It's called the way. And the leaders, just like the Jewish leaders that were threatened and called for the crucifixion of Christ, King Herod's sensitive to this whole stuff. And so he's already called for James to be arrested and beheaded, and that had already took place. And so he thought, hey, it actually says in Scripture that some of the Jewish leaders thought that was a good idea. So he says, I'll do it again. But he had to wait for the feast to be over. As soon as the feast is over, Peter, who has been arrested, is going to be executed. Peter's in prison. He's got four sets of four guards so they can interchange he's shackled he goes to sleep i don't know if i can sleep in that circumstance the scripture says that an angel appeared and the angel hit him to wake him up i think that's interesting i i don't know if i'd sleep that soundly in prison right before i'm getting executed so the angel lifts him up he's not sure if it's a dream a vision what it is and he leads him past two sets of guards and when they get out into the streets when he realizes oh this is a real deal i am actually out of the prison the angel disappears so peter's standing there and he's like what do i do the church remember called out assembly he said wonder where the church would be i bet the church is at mary's house because they're probably praying for me because i've been arrested so he makes his way to mary's house he gets to the courtyard knocks on the door of the courtyard which is a little area before you get to the door of the house and a servant girl by the name of Rhoda. She just ran over from TV land doing some Mary Tyler Moore reruns. And Rhoda answers and says, who is it? And she says, it's Peter. Rhoda doesn't even answer. Rhoda doesn't answer the door, doesn't do anything. She just turns around and runs inside. When she gets in there, think of the pressure. She's got to interrupt her boss as a servant girl and her friends that are all praying. And so Rhoda's probably going, Psst. In my world, they just said, oh, Rhoda. This in my world is what I heard. It says, Peter's outside. Now, first century church, first century Christians, that close to the, the life in, 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 of uh, Jesus, you know they're supernatural. You know that they just responded in faith. No, they didn't. Their first response was, Rhoda, you're nuts. We're praying for Peter because he's in prison. He can't be outside. That's us. We're the same. Understand when you're reading these stories that these are real people acting in real ways. They respond the same way that we do. When miracles happen, we often have two extremes. One, we pray for miracles, but we don't expect it to work. Or two, we're tempted to manufacture hype, so make it look like it, even if it didn't work. 
Look at three of this getting back to the original vision. Chapter 2, verse 45, it was a sharing church. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. The early church was a generous church. You cannot separate Christianity from generosity. Christians, Christian believers, Christian churches have to be pace setters when it comes to generosity. The scripture says that from time to time when they saw a need in their fellowship, they would bring something together to, to take care of that need. They saw the need. Here's, here's what I want. I, I hope you get this more than anything else. Say, when the Chinese guy came to talk to us that Sunday, this is what I remember, okay? When you see a need, respond. Don't wait for somebody else. Don't think some other group's going to do it. You respond. When I was growing up in Columbus, Ohio, my dad... He had a pet peeve for all of us kids that if there was something that needed to be done and we ignored it, take out the trash, mow the grass, whatever it happened to be. And when he asked us about it, our response was, well, it's not my turn or I wasn't the last one to do that or whatever the excuse was. His response was always, if you see a need, fix it. If He goes, that's the adult thing. That's the grown-up thing. That's what we do. If you see a need, right now you are in the midst of a a process and a pilgrimage. Charlie's been talking about a player's box, dealing with pressure. In the last 24 months, our kids in particular have been smashed. I mean, everything from child counseling to drugs to suicide is crazy. We've seen it play out at the Olympics at the highest level or, or tennis players at the highest level that are being crushed Isolation, where there's a lot of stuff we can read into it through the pandemic. But it's a need. And it's been demonstrated. And with Players Box for the last four years, you've been going through this beta process of figuring out this is what works and this is a curriculum and this is how we can do this. And kids are different, whether it's arts or it's academics or it's athletics. But there's a need. And so the challenge is, will you respond? Will you respond or will you wait for somebody else? Because... We set the pace, speed of the leader, speed of the team. Remember when Jesus said, thank you for feeding me when I was hungry? And people were like, don't remember feeding Jesus. Thank you for giving me something to drink when I was thirsty. Now, I'm pretty sure I didn't give him anything to drink. Then he says, thank you for visiting me when I was in prison. And I'm like, I'm, no, I did not go see Jesus in prison. He said, as you do to the least of these, you do unto me. So when we see a need, like the youth of our community and we have an opportunity like through players box this is how you respond you don't step over it you fix it look also in the sharing they saw the need to they sacrificed their possessions verse 44 they had everything in common it wasn't a redistribution of wealth it's from time to time when they saw a need they would bring some wealth they would sell something bring something and share it and then three they entrusted it to the apostles acts chapter four no there was no need among them from time to time they saw the need and brought the gift why did they bring it to the apostles see because we could if we see a need we could just do something I think there are at least three reasons. Why three? Because I'm a preacher and put a sad story as a sermon. Three, three reasons that we, when we collectively do something, we collectively see a need, we bring it to our leaders. Number one, it's the strength of combining gifts. Player's box would be overwhelming trying to solve a need by myself. 
But collectively, as a group, we can do that. Two, the wisdom of the leaders. We trust that our leaders are researching and prayerfully thinking through the process so we're not just wasting dollars. And three, it removes my ego. So it's not, hey, how great Phil is. It's we as a body have done this thing. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. First obligation is the household of faith. See, we help everybody. We love everybody, help everybody. But there should never be a need within our body. First obligation, household of faith. I was uh, in a church in the Midwest, and they had a cool ministry where if you were trying to get out of debt or trying to get back on your feet, and we knew that, know that cars are one of the, the easiest ways to waste money. And they say, if you've got an old car, and it's still structurally sound, but, you know, it's just depreciated, not worth a lot on paper, we got mechanics that'll work for free, and they'll go over and make sure it's safe. Our aid and assistance ministry will buy parts if they're needed. And then you can just write us and say, this is why this car would be a blessing to me, and we will help you with a car to get you from point A to point B. The night I was there, they had 200 cars in the back by an old barn that they were working with. I'm like, ain't that cool? I was impressed. I gave them my rental car. Um, <laughs> made me feel good. Hertz wasn't happy. Uh, We're working with the church in Nebraska, and raising money for a project similar to what you guys are doing here. And a 12-year-old boy named Carlito brought a gift because he wanted to be part of this process, and what they're doing is very much directed toward their youth like players' boxes for you. And we took a picture. He brought $98 in small bills and put it on a desk. Uh, with his pastor as a gift. And we took that picture and put it on social media. It got more attention than anything we've ever done in the last 10 years. Carlito, during the depths of this pandemic, his father committed suicide, and his mother is in prison for drugs offense, drug offenses. He says, the church has been my home, it has been my family, and I want to make sure that it's here to help other kids like me going forward. Isn't that amazing? That's a true story, not a preacher story. We have an opportunity to kind of reboot who we are as believers and as churches. We're coming out of this shutdown, pandemic, everything that's destroyed so many churches across the country. And it's an opportunity to go back and say, okay, who are we? What's our original vision? What is our purpose? What are we trying to accomplish? And then what is my role? And I think what you're doing right now with your direction of player's box and reaching youth under that pressure is a great response. Would you pray with me? Dear God, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Um, I praise you for your word. that We don't just go through life wondering what is it we're trying to, to do with our lives that you give us direction that we can read and say, okay, how as a believer am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to react? How am I supposed to process or think? Help us to be known individually and collectively uh, as people of generosity, as people of vision, as people of compassion. That when they talk about us, they said, oh, that's the group that helps kids. That's the group that helps families. That's the group that helps people from being smashed by the pressures of life. Bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.